Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you. Dr. Bart Costco back with us, professor of electrical and computer engineering and law at the University of Southern California. He's an award-winning pioneer and author in the machine learning fields of artificial intelligence, neural networks, fuzzy logic as well. He holds degrees and listen to this, philosophy, economics, mathematics, electrical engineering, and law. Dr. Costco has organized several conferences on machine learning and serves on the editorial board of several technical journals as well. He holds several patents on machine learning and has published well over 150,000 scientific articles. A couple of his books include Cool Earth, Nanotime, Noise, Heaven in a Chip, which he wrote in the 90s, Fuzzy Thinking as well. Bart, welcome back. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year, George. Good to be back with you. How's everything going? Everything well, I hope? It's been going great, George. You know, when I started out, they told me that a researcher's life basically ended at age 40. And I'm wrapping up my 62nd year. It's just been <laughs> one of my best years. I, I, I'm finishing a new book. I wrote several new papers, journal articles, got two new patents, introduced a new kind of neuron called the, I call it the Nova Neuron, to make deep networks even deeper. And overall, uh, having a good time. So the old three-pound meat computer is still hitting on most of the cylinders. Super, super. We've got a lot to talk with you about tonight, Bart, sure. and the technology just keeps changing. I had a story last night that a semi-truck completed an 80-mile route in Arizona with no human aboard, no human intervention during the trip using technology developed by a company called Too Simple. I'm opposed to driverless trucks because I don't want our truck drivers losing jobs, but I can't believe this kind of technology, Bart. You know, I have to look at that very closely, George. Years ago, I did an experiment on I-15 freeway near San Diego for a driverless car. They have a segment where you can test that. And, in fact, they have two cars and what's called a platoon. As long as the traffic's not bad and it's reasonably straight, you can do it. But what brought it to a halt, I think, would still stop it here. It's not the job loss issue, George. It's the legal liability. Because accidents happen. They happen at a high rate. Indeed, modern tort law really began with train accidents and then car accidents. And one can only imagine the effect of smart car crashes or truck crashes. So I have to look at it carefully, but no doubt there's that capability. And it's getting stronger by the day. There's a lot. There are a lot of techniques for pattern recognition, but the trouble is you need something that's really like a human 99.999% accurate. The best kind of smart algorithms might get you on toy cases, 98, 99%. I don't think that's good enough to turn loose yet. Maybe someday. I mean, will a driverless truck sense heavy snow and learn how to slow down and be careful? That's the tough part. Exactly those few moments where something can go wrong on a curve or, again, that fuzzy change in the road from light snow to heavier snow and how you control the torque, things that we really take not just for granted, but like when you ride a bicycle, it's almost eerie. You don't quite know how it is you control it. And trying to develop that sort of advanced intuition in the machine, we're a long way from it, maybe. But the, the risk is so high, especially with something like a truck, I mean, just one-half times mass velocity squared kinetic energy. Yeah, there's a lot of mass there, and they go pretty fast. It's a ways off, George, but there are no doubt some tasks where that would work, maybe in the backcountry, but 
on an L.A. freeway? I don't think so anytime soon. Oh, that's good. Uh, next hour when we take calls, you truck drivers try to make a call to us and give us your thoughts on this as well. Well, I want so many things to talk with you about, but you've been looking into artificial intelligence, and there are some things about AI that is just dramatic. They've helped paralyze ALS patients. Tell me about that. Yes. Yeah, it's a big breakthrough from the company Syncron. This is FDA approved. It's beaten Elon Musk to the Neuralink. Uh, Neuralink, I think, is trying to do something similar. We don't know. It's not quite as perspicuous as this. But here's a case, George, where somebody's paralyzed, and you have a lot of folks like that because of stroke or just car accidents or whatever it happens to be. And the net result is this gentleman, a 62-year-old man named Philip O'Keefe, just sent a tweet and it's, I think, very much in the history of AI going to be up there with Samuel Morse's first telegraph tweet of what hath God wrought. That was 1844. <laughs> yeah. Mary had a little lamb with Thomas Edison on the first phonograph in 1877. I actually have the tweet, and I, I saw it online. The opening, the tweet is this, no need for keystrokes or voices. I created this tweet just by thinking it. And so rather than drilling a hole in someone's head, as has been the case for neural prostheses or EEG kind of maps on the head, it's a small incision apparently in the juggler vein just above the, the right shoulder where there's a telemetry unit put. And they put up there a catheter, which is fairly common for stroke treatment and things like that, and a two-hour procedure all the way to the top of your brain, George, to the motor cortex. Amazing. And then they have you do exercises with whatever muscle coordination is left, clenching things. Can you clench your fist? Can you extend your knee, which is in effect to clench your thigh, your quadricep, move your foot? And that's involving uh, neural impulses, electrical impulses, again, at the very tippy top of the motor cortex. Then comes the AI. The AI comes in to start to recognize that. In the simplest case, a binary distinction is that a, for example, a cursor movement, you want it to go to the left or to the right, and then they have an eye tracker set up with a screen. When all this is done, maybe after two or three months of training, in a fairly non-obtrusive way, the subjects are able to tweet with some effort and shop online all in a Windows 10 environment. Is there, is there anything that could go wrong, not technically, but biologically, that could backfire and hurt the person? You know, I think there's always a concern with an implant when you put a device in, just uh, some kind of sepsis or some other damage, vascular damage. What I read of the study, as best I could follow it, uh, it's a lengthy thing, recently came out. There was an awful lot of testing this, first on animals and then on humans. But you always have that problem, George, that you could have something uh, go wrong. This is very much like uh, someone has had a heart attack where you remove the clot or, again, if there's been brain damage, you thread something up to the neck, and I believe they leave that, leave that in there, and then through remote uh, telegraphy, they, they get movement and enhance that, so it does give impulses out that correspond to what you want it to do. And after all, I mean, more and more of us spend our life looking at a screen and navigating it, so it's a, whatever the health hazards are, and I'm sure they've looked at that carefully, and they'll be addressing that in the future, it's, it's a big degree of freedom for those in this capacity. Now, Elon Musk's Neuralink, Bart, uh, is, is rapidly coming along as well. And it is my understanding that what they want to do is put chips in your brain. How do they, what do they connect them to? That's always a tough question. Here you have a neural prosthesis, and my guess, that's what they're doing at Neuralink. We're, I think we're going to find out 
Elon Musk has said we're going to hear more about that in the year 2022. And it's large teams of very smart people working on this. But what we really want to see and will come inevitably are chips for backup, at least for part of your brain. Again, if you get a bump on the head, you'd like to be able to have a system restore point and go back to that and then to enhance it. The trouble with that, George, is to get the silicon, in effect, to talk to the meat, to talk to the neural fiber. And the, the neural fibers talk in on-off pulses, electrical pulses. We have not cracked that spike language. So, for example, this device we're talking about and others like it is sort of a high-level macro way of training the brain without really knowing what's going on. Uh, but we'd like at some point, and we will be able to, I'm quite confident, to speak the spike language, to at least to back up your spike language. Then it would be a perfectly fluid relationship of the chip-brain interface. Right now it's the big bottleneck and has been for 20 years. It is a truly remarkable technology, though, things that uh, you saw back in the 90s when you wrote Heaven in a Chip. We saw it coming. We saw Moore's Law. Even by then, Moore's Law had been doubling the number of transistors on-off switches on chips for really 30 years. That slowed a little bit. It's still going on, George. It's likely to continue in some way. So we can estimate how many switches there are in the brain. Like if you took the best modern deep neural networks, uh, several layers, boosted with Minova neuron or whatever else you put in there, you would the brain still would be the equivalent somewhere between 100,000 to a million of those, at least those, and coordinated in ways we don't yet know. We're still trying to figure out that spike language. But in terms of the rough back-of-the-napkin computations, like you would do, for example, in the Drake equation in a different context, we've had that since the 90s. And it's just been this effort of faster computers. So the computers are going so fast in these kinds of training, they're running circles around the actual neural impulses and have a chance to go back and tune parameters. They're running algorithms that take a long time to train. But again, the, the tissue goes much more slowly than the electrical devices of today. And that's what's changed. It's going to continue to change, at least for a couple decades. Is there anything that people should be aware about, Bart, in terms of legality with all this kind of technology? I'm very concerned about this, and I want to argue for this if we have time, for what I call a chip brain privilege. Because this is highly intrusive stuff in the brain. And the skull, George, has always been a complete legal barrier to discovery in a civil case or in a criminal case. But you could imagine if we had someone with one of these devices committing crimes online. Oh, my God. Or, yeah. or just uh, ripping people off here or doing torts and otherwise causing harm. How probative, how helpful it would be to have some of that information that we could download that would be available. If we don't draw a line here like we have with the attorney-client privilege or the priest-penitent privilege where we kick out very good probative information, then the first few cases that start will get access to this information, could well set a precedent, and we'll give up privacy here, deep in-skull privacy that we may never be able to retrieve. That is a big concern, and it's right here now. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern, and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.